Richard Charkin has been working in the publishing industry since 1972. This is the second time that he's been on the Bibliophile, and we are at his offices in Bedford Square, London, England. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you. Very happy to be back. It was a really enjoyable occasion the last time around where I got to see your backyard and listen to all the airplanes. And <laughs> They're still there. Yeah, today I want to talk about uh, some of the challenges that are facing the publishing industry. You've identified a number of them, but I want to start off with one that, that has its... Uh, well, I think it may well have always been a concern of publishers. I know Jeffrey Faber was concerned about it, and Michael Joseph too. So the question is, is birth control for books required? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, the answer is no. There is little doubt that there are far more books being born than probably deserve to be born, and definitely more books are born than do good for the industry in that they clog up, if I can continue the medical metaphor, they clog up the arteries of the industry. However, I would treat birth control for books in the same way as I would treat murdering babies. Every book is someone's baby and <laughs> the creativity, the diligence that goes into those books, even if we see them as meretricious, but for someone they are real. And I think stamping on creativity in any way is a mistake. So you're pro-life? I'm pro-life. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> but, I mean, the technology that allows how what is it now 500 600,000 new titles in english every year adding to the tens of millions of available books um the technology which allows that to happen also allows us to navigate to where we want to be in a way it reinforces the role of the publisher of the literary agent and the publisher and the retailer to act as gatekeepers to help readers find the books they want and not the ones they do not want. So if, being, we're being overwhelmed right now and this is uh, yeah. a role that... It's always been a role. I, I think it's become more acute just because of the volume. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, if you want to draw a parallel with another part of publishing, which is scientific publishing, the number of research papers being published in the world today, I, I think I'm not using this word incorrectly, I think it has grown exponentially over a period of probably 50 years to a number that I, I don't even have the number in my head, but it's hundreds of thousands of research papers every year. And what the scientific community has had to do is to develop a triage system. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want to s stamp on any of those research papers, but we need to help people navigate. And that's what publishers do, arguably. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you should mention science, because um, 
One of the things that you've been responsible for with Bloomsbury after the enormous success of Harry Potter. And continuing success of Harry Potter. We're doing more now than we've ever done. It's extraordinary. How so? Illustrated editions uh, on the back of her fantastic activities with her play, a big show at the British Library, which is now in New York, the movies, everything uh, which, which enhances uh, Harry Potter and enhances our sales. So mostly the backlist then? Oh yeah, backlist. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but what's wrong with Backlist? I'm sure Jeffrey Faber and Michael Joseph <laughs> would, would be as uh, keen on Backlist as I am. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the, the backbone. But sorry, I, we, were, we, we got um, post-Harry Potter, Bloomsbury has built what you might describe as a, a safer, a more sustainable, not so much bestseller-driven, although we, we welcome bestsellers. Mm -hmm. But we have this balance between the, what we call the consumer and the non-consumer divisions. Well, yes, and uh, in fact, that the idea of a glut of books on the market, or the reason that, that publishers publish so much is, I suppose, that it's a numbers game, they feel, and that at some point they're going to hit it big with a, with a bestseller, and they don't know exactly what that's going to be. Well, yes, that's certainly true, but I, if I could revert to science again, in natural selection, in evolution, there are two principal strategies. Uh, one you might describe as the elephant strategy, where an elephant typically has two progeny, um, and by gum they look after those baby elephants to ensure they survive. Yeah. And the other is what you might call the codfish that has several million progeny, only two of which are likely to survive. And there's nothing wrong with either strategy. Yet it results the same. Yeah. The result comes out the same, but it's a matter of taste. <laughs> and are you a elephant publisher or a codfish? We're getting a little bit of David Attenborough in here. <laughs> well, I remember, I, don't, I hope I'm not doing anyone an injustice, but um, St. Martin's Press, when, when managed, run by Tom McCormack in the 70s and 80s, maybe longer, I can't, don't know exactly, was very much, his, his approach was he'd come to England and would buy rights in as many books as he possibly could, paying as little money as he possibly could, and every now and again he got a winner, like James Herriot, mm -hmm. uh, which goes to your thesis there. <laughs> when some more Martin's Press changed management, they focused more on a few really big authors. So they actually made a shift. Although I suspect there's still an element of the, they're not quite Farrah Strauss, put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. Going forward, I hate that term, but going yeah. forward, do you think there's a benefit to following one approach or the other, or it doesn't really matter? Um, i tell you what I think. Um, I think the very big publishers are the market, and for them, they need the volume, they, their strength is scale. They need the market, they need the continuing number of books, and they have the financial resource to take the risk across a large number of titles. I think for the smaller publishers, 
I suspect, again, they have no choice, but they go down the elephant strategy. Mm. And that has its compensations. Well, they feel like they're doing justice to each title, too, I suppose. I, I think that, and I think that, well, at least how I see it, not everyone sees it this way, is that if you've got an elephant baby to look after, you have to look after every bit of it. You have to make sure it gets fed, it gets washed, it gets slept, it gets protected. Loved. In winter and summer and daytime and nighttime. You don't subcontract, well, subcontract's the wrong word, you don't break up the bits. Everything, there's a gestalt, everything has to be done. Whereas, you know, frequently books, sometimes in America, a different publisher and another one does German and another one does this and the agent retains the rights to this and that. So that who, who is the mother or father of this baby? <laughs> and so I think... And that's the worst thing for the kid. Well, you'd have really, thought. Really, they need to know who your parents are. Well, exactly. And so I think that um, a, a gradually over the last 45 years, uh, more and more rights have been withheld from the publisher, which I understand from the author's point of view and the agent's point of view. But... I think in the end it reduces the responsibility of the publisher, of the, of the mother elephant. Yeah. The, the so the mother, child, you know. The mother doesn't feel quite so invested in the child. Exactly. So if you don't have any benefit from the German rights, you really don't give a damn what happens in Germany, where maybe you should. So. It seems to me that literary agents are, they're, they've increased in their influence and power in the industry. Hugely. You think that's going to continue? Do you ever see it, you know, the mother? Yeah, uh, I think not. I think for for when it comes to the dealing with the big publishers, I think an author needs uh, that support. Mm. The kind of giving it over to... Because then the the literary agent is effectively becoming the publisher. They become the mother. Yes, yes. But if the smaller publishers can offer maternity care, <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, then the agent is not as necessary. Yeah. I don't think. Okay. But, you know, as the big guys are going to control a very substantial part of the market and possibly a, a growing part of the market, the agents will live off them. Mm-hmm. Okay. How is copyright being eroded these days? <laughs> Just look around you. Just look around you. Well, first of all, there's clearly piracy. Um, the, the facility, the ease of pirating digital books makes a mockery of, to some extent, of copyright. Mm. Um, that's that's fairly obvious. Then because it's impossible to police. Well, you can police it, and you can do, and people, and, and and publishers' associations, and publishers, and copyright agencies are doing their best. So we 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 can control it. It's not like the music industry. We didn't we didn't release digital versions, unprotected digital versions, into the world as the CD was. We we didn't do that. Mm. So we we can protect it, but you you know, you're never protected absolutely. It's 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 not feasible. And if you think of a 
again back to scientific publishing, uh, ResearchGate and um, whatever they're called, the various people who make available everything. Uh, that's that's a breach of copyright in, in many ways. I think possibly not ResearchGate, although there's grey areas in all this. But the other area... ResearchGate is, uh, is what, professors putting their stuff up on their own? They, ResearchGate's an organisation based in Germany who encourage scientists to put the stuff up on their site mm. so that everyone can see it. Yeah. That is not fine if the original publisher has the copyright license. Mm -hmm. um, however, it's very hard for pu and publishers don't want to sue their own authors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I guess the authors, the thing is the So authors. the authors are the breaches of the copyright, yeah. in a way. And they're breaching their own copyright. They're breaching their own copyright, yeah. So this is one of the, you know this is one of the complexities that has emerged from this technological change. Um, and I so, know, sorry, a lot of the professors want yeah, of to they, they want to publish textbooks too that they don't typically make a lot of money off. off well, textbooks is a different game because they game, do get paid same, something. Same author, yeah. But same author, but, but the, the, the students have to pay a huge amount of yeah. money, and that, and that's what the, that's what's driving this open yep. text. Yep. Although the open text movement is not nearly as dramatic as the open research movement. Wouldn't open be. access to journal articles is growing rapidly and is huge and is transformational. The open texting is, I would say, at the moment anyway, around the fringes rather than in the centre. Right. I mean, it's certainly damaged sales of textbooks, but probably more damaging has been Amazon's ability to manage a used book service incredibly efficiently. Textbooks, yeah. Yeah, textbooks. yeah. So that, in, in a way, that technology was more. But so back to the um, erosion of copyright. The other area is, of, of course, the um, GAFMA, the big technology companies whose interests are in building their customer base rather than their content base. They want traffic and they will use anything. So the original, the Google Library project was such a thing. And now we have various um, legal challenges to their using other people's material and what is copyright and how much is copyright, what can you take, what can't you take. But all we do know is chipping away and indeed uh, the creation of a psychology which says information is free and should be free, which in itself undermines the status of copyright. Yeah, the, the, the general attitude among people is to take umbrage at having to pay for yeah. reading the paper now. Uh, absolutely, although I would, I remember a guy called Gordon Graham, who was the MD of McGraw-Hill in the UK, Canadian I think, hmm. um, or maybe you're Scottish with a Canadian accent, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, whatever, Gordon Graham once said that where information is free, there is little freedom of information. And there is some sense in that. If it's free, you're not quite sure Pravda during the communist era mm. was as fake news as fake news is today.
So, yeah, so the undermining of copyright through this sense, as you say, of, of, of people thinking stuff should be free. Mm. And then unintended consequences damaging to copyright. So the Canadian government, I don't want to pick on them, Okay. But, uh, to do that. <laughs> yes, and what's more, we're allowed to without going to jail. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know the, the full details of the legal situation, but essentially, they, under Canadian copyright law, made an exception for use in libraries and in schools of copyright material so that the school or the library did not have to pay copyright fees for the reproduction of choral music for the school concert or whatever. Well, the joy of copyright is pretty simple. That's mine. <laughs> and if you want to use it, you must ask my permission and I will grant it or not, and I will make it free to you, or mm. I will not make it free but to you. But it's your decision. But it's my decision, mm. it's not the Canadian government's decision. But they created this exception, because it's for good causes. No one doubts the goodness of the cause, or indeed the, the, the goodness of the thinking that went into it. The result has been incredibly damaging to the Canadian educational publishers market, as a result of which a number of people have pulled out of publishing educational books in Canada altogether because they just won't get a return on it. And in turn, it does what the Canadian government, I'm sure, does not wish to do, which is it sucks in more US textbooks into the Canadian market. An even more complicated and dif difficult exception is that for visually handicapped people. Publishers have always, as far as I know, always, always allowed Braille editions and indeed have, have facilitated digital editions for visually handicapped people. But the organisations representing visually handicapped wanted it more than custom and practice. They wanted it enshrined in a law giving an exception to copyright. Now, it's a very difficult situation because you definitely want, you're on their side. Yeah, on the other hand, what is a visually handicapped person? How do you define it? So how broad is this exception? Mm -hmm. um, how do you monitor it? How do you ensure that it's not being abused? Uh, how do you protect the interests of the author community whose copyrights you're representing? And we got through it. There's a thing called the Marrakesh Treaty which is now being adopted around the world by countries, but by God, it's hard. Mm. And again, it's, I think we call it salami slicing. What mm. was a simple copyright, this is mine, I can decide, is being diminished. Yeah. So when I think about the threats to copyright, that exceptions is one. And indeed, there are the, the Australian government I hope they've forgotten this idea now, but they were thinking of adopting the Canadian mm. thing for their educational institutions. And we've pointed out to them what happened in Canada. And, and incidentally, I, th I think the Canadian government is rethinking this. Please, God, they come to the right conclusion. 
they they get a second chance, unlike the Brexit, Brexit referendum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow I uh, I don't see huge crowds of. Uh, uh, people protesting it in Canada, though. Like, this is <laughs> no, but we can have huge crowds protesting here, and it still doesn't make doesn't any make difference. difference. Uh, you know. Yeah, this, this has come out a, a couple of times just just recently with in Canada the Giller Award winner, yeah, and just now the Booker winner. They've used their prize money to pay off their debts. Authors are speaking of copyright and protecting yeah. their income it seems like it's more difficult than well, ever I mean, to well, make money as an author well the society of authors published a some survey or the alcs the association of whatever it is mm-hmm. collecting agencies published a thing saying that the average wage for an author if that's the it's a wrong it's yeah. a misnomer but anyway has fallen which i could well believe uh in that well, the changes, prices of books have fallen in real terms. In this country, at least, the public library system is shot to bits, which, which for the middlest author, for, you know, for the big guys are still making lots of money. Mm-hmm. And the little guys who do nothing, still do nothing. Mm-hmm. But I think mainly it's hit the middlest author. And for them, public libraries was a significant source of income. They still get uh, some income, but it's I'm sure it's diminished. Um, but also that back to your thing about the number of about contraception and all the rest of it, the number of books out there. So you take the totality of the marketplace; it's it's it's, yes. it's going to be shared around more people. So I, I think being sliced thinner and thinner. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hmm. And uh, I don't see that changing. <clears throat> Except, yeah, no, I don't see it changing. I can't see how it can. Mm. So then you have to say, well, the authors who will earn more are the ones that are doing something so special that people will pay more for it, or more people will pay the same for it. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. You know, one sympathises. I I really do sympathise with, particularly with the midlist, the professional author who, you know, the the not f- premiership. But first, second division crime writer right. who used to sell 10,000 copies is now selling 5,000. That's hard, and they're professionals. Why do English language books need both an American and a British editor while others don't? I have absolutely no idea. I can think well. I can think of various explanations of how it's come to be. There was, I think, it was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Was published in America, and the galleys proofs were shipped over to England, and an English publisher published it separately. Um, because it took a long time for the ships to get over and to typeset something twice was, was, uh, it was so, so you used to have two editions. That clearly is not the case today. I don't think transport or logistics is the issue. Is it just because they want to change some slang or lingo perhaps or colloquialisms? Well, or, that's or, true in some very early level children's books mm, where yeah. aubergines and eggplant uh, yeah yeah, yeah. 
but not for adult stuff. No, in I fact, don't. I think it's an abomination mm-hmm. to start fiddling with an author's language. But well, then why do they have these All right, well, we'll come to that. But just to say, when I was a, at Macmillan and we owned Nature magazine, Science Magazine, the rule was that Americans wrote in American and Brits wrote in Brits and Australians wrote in Australian. If that was their spelling, that was their way. That's what it was, even in the same magazine. We didn't try to impose any degree of consistency. So I think that's a, that's a red herring. Now, I think there are a number of reasons. If I start with the cynical ones, if you're a literary agent representing an author, your job is to maximise the advance payable to that author. It is probably easier to split the rights in order to get two overpaid advances. The thing about advances, though, is that it's just getting the money up front. Well, yes, theoretically. But in, well, in theory, but if in, they don't sell, then they do. They that's what, they yeah, but that's their it. job. They get to keep it. They do get to keep so it. So that's the point. Even if they don't sell it. Yeah, yeah. And in that's many, the case many, in all of the all of the contracts. A lot. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, that, that's a cynical thing. The second cynical thing is that the literary agent charges fifteen percent, typically not always, but typically, of the author's income. Now, if all they had to do was one contract with a publisher for world rights, why would they get 15%? Yeah, why couldn't the author just do it directly? Yeah, sign the or pay the guy $500 to yeah. do the contract. By making it complex. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, by making it so that it looks like they're doing extra work. Yeah, yeah. which they are, you know. Yeah, okay. Which they are. They're making work. I would argue it's make work. Yeah. So those are the two um, cynical explanations. The, the, the less cynical, although I'm not entirely convinced, is that an editor in the U.S. will have a better understanding of the marketplace and will ensure that the book gets the best possible treatment. Which means what? Well, it means going to the sales conference and making a fuss about it. It means ensuring that the cover is more appropriate to the American market. I don't happen to agree with that. Also, I think it's incredibly nationalistic because that implies there are only two countries in the world one being the USA and the other being the United Kingdom mm. actually the books will sell in Australia and maybe Australia should have an edition if the logic would say and what about India give them a separate cover and a separate editor Canada typically and, does have and a Canada separate, does that every now and then do have a separate ed- yeah. edition yeah sometimes o- often yeah. with the with the big ones anyway yeah no absolutely and i think it's i think it's uh, it's an obsolete concept. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm afraid I, I'm in a minority. Most people support h- having these things. Now the downside of having the two editions, apart from the additional cost, multiple covers, multiple editors, multiple this, multiple that. But just sorry, let's, what do the editors do? Well, I mean, you know, if you take Margaret Atwood, for instance, mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's an editor in the US and probably one in Canada reading it and editing and commenting and feeding back to Peggy. And there's one here. Now, whether that improves it by having all these people looking at it, I'm not sure, but if she thinks it does, then... 
Yeah, but do they all sort of have input and then she comes out with one manuscript yeah. or do they have input? No, 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 one manuscript, one manuscript, right. so right. they have input. So she's got a bunch yeah. of people calling her up. Yeah, yeah, okay. or, although typically the US or the UK publisher will be the sort of integrator of, of, of that. Mm. But the other downside is a commercial one, which is that copyright is a legal monopoly. Monopolies are illegal by and large. Copyright, we're lucky, said, yeah, you could have a monopoly. You can have a monopoly for typically 70 years after the death of the author. There is a monopoly for the author. It protects the author. And their offspring. And and their offspring for a generation is the idea, possibly too. Once you have a duopoly, uh, duopolies are a lot less effective than monopolies, (laughs) (laughs) Once you have a duopoly, um, they are less effective. And, of course, in much of the world is what's called an open market. An exclusive UK edition in the UK and Australia and bits of the Commonwealth, but excluding Canada normally. The US has Canada and the US, North America. They forget about Mexico. Don't know why. Anyway, the rest of the world is typically carved, is, is open. That means you've moved from monopoly to a duopoly mm-hmm. in these territories. So, in other words, the bookseller has the choice of buying the American or the uh, the British yeah. or Canadian yeah. even yeah. edition yeah. if they want to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then they typically will pick the cheapest, which probably returns the least to the author long term. And that part of that might be exchange rates. Yeah, uh, all countries. sorts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Amazon certainly monitor changing exchange rates and ensure that they buy the cheapest. Mm. And of course, it then reduces the motivation of the publisher. For instance, if you don't have an exclusive right in Japan to sell the book, because there's two of you or three of you, or four of you if there's an Australian edition, Mm. who's going to put up the money to promote it? No one. Yeah, because why should I promote the other guy? Exactly. So, so that's so, the situation right now. That's the situation right now. Not on all books, and and uh, fortunately, well, in in academic publishing, it's definitely not the case. Everything is worldwide and and managed properly, mm. in my view, <laughs> and quite a lot of nonfiction. But where it comes to fiction, there's very very often uh, separate editions. So, again, future, going to head towards what yeah. you're thinking? Yeah, I think so, because yeah. the, big, the big companies are all global. There's no reason why Penguin Random House can't handle a book everywhere in the world. And they will. Yeah. They'll pretend not to. <laughs> well, this is another thing with Penguin Random House, is they've got so many colophones yeah. that yeah. trying to, to, what, suck the consumer into thinking... That there's all sorts of different editors who... Well, but, they, but it's true. They have all sorts of different editors. The question is, how free are they, ultimately? Right. So, I there's, mean... The, there's no competition. It's basically... Well, it's a marketing ploy, isn't it? Um, no, I don't think... Well, I'm, I'm sure some of it. But I don't... No, I really don't think that is the main driver. The main driver is that they've acquired 
over the years, lots of these publishing imprints, mm. distinguished publishing Wonderful. imprints, yeah. and they've paid Great. good money for them. They aren't going to bury them. <laughs> no, no so, the brand is there. So the brand is there, yeah. and it's a brand, it's, it's more a, an author-facing brand than a reader-facing brand. I don't think the readers, by and large, care very much. Yeah, they'll buy the author. They buy the author, yeah. yeah. So it's a way of attracting authors because the... The prestige of... Yeah, and yeah. you know, I'm in the same thing as 10 companies publish George Orwell or whatever it might be. I see. I mean, Faber certainly have that in spades. Mm. But so, you know, so do many of the Penguin Random House or Ashette yeah. or HarperCollins brands. Um, so mainly the competition is about encouraging authors to you at the best, you know, for the best books. Oh, that's interesting. So it's used in a way to attract the, yeah. the best authors. Just like uh, advertising, I've heard, is it's basically directed at the at the authors. It's uh, the fact that, oh, look what they're doing for so-and-so. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they'll do that for me. No, absolutely. And I think it's right. And, and the, the author wants to think that the editor at Heinemann or at Secker has control, and they do. Mm, mm. More yeah. control, you know. But that's what leads to, incidentally, back to the original question, to the multiple editions, because if Ms. Secker in New York doesn't like the book, why should she be forced to put it on her list? So then it goes somewhere else. Mm. Then you end up with two editions. Mm. Sometimes. Mind you, you'd, you'd think at Penguin Random House they could find someone to like a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. Why do publishers make available their least affordable format, hardback, at the time of maximum publicity exposure for a book, and then issue the affordable paperback when there's greatly less exposure now that's that's the question and I would add a, a corollary to that question if you can have a corollary to a question I'm not sure is that why is it that Australians Irish people and people occupying the bits of airport beyond customs get paperbacks when people living in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland have to make do with hardbacks. I can only think it's sheer madness. And I guess, I mean, I suppose really what's happened is that the paperback has diminished in importance particularly with ebook availability. So mm. the ebook has really eaten into the paperback market, leaving the hardback uh, as being the main source of revenue. So, but it seems to me either you think books are worth £20, $30, or they're not. Uh, and if they're worth £20, $30, Publish them at £20, $30 with the thing. Don't worry about the paperback so much. And I think maybe that's what's, what's happened. It's, it's, but, but I would also say, if, if it is right to publish a trade paperback at 
$20 rather than $30 around publication, then so be it if you can make it work. Um, yeah, do they, um, funny, I'm trying to remember the, it was weird, it was a, I don't know if it was the first, but it was a Methuen book by a guy called Lind, Concrete something. Anyway, I think that's, that was an experiment they did where they they put the paperback and the hardback out at the same time. Uh-huh. Why don't they do that now? Uh, we do, well, academic does publishing count? does, frequently. Right. Um, well, because the the assumption is that you'd never sell any hardbacks. One will cannibalize. Yeah. Although, you know, with Harry Potter, for instance, we've had hardbacks and paperbacks in the market. We've had adult versions and children's versions. We've had them boxed every which way. And, and yeah. it works. Well, that's, you know, that's an exceptional thing. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a perfectly good question as to why you wouldn't. I To give a, a, a very parochial example there, there's a book I've been involved in for 25 years called Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac. It's a big fat thing. I know, I got the, the, the last picture I took of you. You had I a bunch had the, of them. Yeah, I've got even more now. Um, <laughs> and it's £60 in hardback. There's a paperback edition comes out simultaneously. Yeah. Priced at £60. <laughs> some people want the paperback and some people well, want the hardback. You know, with the, the second-hand book business, yeah. the trade paperbacks sell much better than hardbacks yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. So they'll give you more in a trade-in for a, for a, <laughs> a trade paperback. Yeah. So, um, I mean, these are things that will change. I mean, and in different markets, you see. I mean, in France, for instance, nearly everything comes out in paperback, in a trade paperback format, at Typically, 22 euros. That's quite a lot of money for a paperback, mm-hmm. but, but that's the established price and good on them. Uh, and there's occasionally they do hardbacks, but I think the bulk come out initially and you don't need a hardback, depending on the type of book. Mm-hmm. Collectibles, gifts, maybe. Is that a very small part of the market? Collectors? Like, are there are there more collectors now than, than before, or the no, same? Or no, no idea. idea. No idea. I mean, it's one of those. Do you know? It, I think it's fair to say that we have no idea about almost everything. <laughs> well, that's the thing about publishing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's what makes it interesting. <laughs> What's happening now with you and Bloomsbury? All right. Okay, after 11 years of very happy years at Bloomsbury, uh, doing all sorts of stuff and being on the board, and it's a public company listed on the main London Stock Exchange, where there are very strict and proper governance rules and the rest of it. I'm, I'm now 69. Don't so, look it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and I, I, was, I came down from seven days a week, 24 hours a day, to uh, two or three days a week, and then wanted to do more things. Um, so I stepped down from the board in June and stepped down from line management. However, so I, I'm no longer on the Bloomsbury payroll, I'm no longer on their board. They announced their results yesterday, and so I, joy of joys, I'm not doing the trip around the City of London talking to the shareholders and all that. Um, however, Up I'm. Or down? What? The up or down? The shares? Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. It's easier to do it when they're up. Um, oh, the shares, I have, to, I have a terrible admission here. We announced my change, my, my change thing in the last set of results in June, which were terrific results. So we popped in about me leaving and the share price zoomed up, which is, I'm pleased to say for my shareholding, but not so pleased that I was, that they all uh, so enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the share price has, gone, has moderated a bit now. Um, but, um, Anyway, so, however, they asked me to stay on doing a few things. So I'm working on a strategy for China and for cricket. If Those are the two main things, but a few other things as well on the side. Uh, and I'm always available to them for whatever mm -hmm. use I may pay. And I try to be helpful, which I am. So that so that was my Bloomsbury relationship. So I still they give me a little office upstairs, which I share with someone, which is very nice. Uh, and I'm, I still go to parties and things, and, uh, <laughs> and still see people, and people still ask my advice on various things, and that's completely fine. And that will carry on for as long as it carries on. Um, meanwhile, and, and the China thing is very important. So for yeah. obvious reasons. Just a bit about China. What, what on earth are you going to do with China? Well, I think the big opportunity um, that I can talk about, <laughs> there are many opportunities in China. China, China is a huge, difficult, uh, mesmerizing... It's weird. Um, it's weird. What, uh, well, it's that, weird, but you know, Trumpian America is not straightforward, I, if I that's, might. That's true, but and just, just, sorry, just, uh, I was over there about six months ago, yeah. and just looking at all these rows and rows of skyscrapers yeah. that are empty, that were uh, just, uh, just put up, yeah. and, and I guess people moved in, and then they moved out, and they're just yeah. sitting there, like, cities, empty. Yeah, well, there are some empty, and some overflowing as well, so. True, yeah. Um, but that's a managed economy for you, I guess. But. Well, yes. I mean, the, the pluses and minuses of a managed economy. Mm -hmm. You should look up the case study of the port authorities of Singapore and Hong Kong when they both put in computer systems. It's a, it's a Harvard Business School case study. The Singapore one was a controlled economy. Hong Kong was free enterprise. And they went about it in the typical ways that each of them would do. It was to build a system so you could turn the ships around more rapidly when they came in and left. And it transpired that they both cost the same and they were both as effective. <laughs> it's a little like the elephants and the codfish, you know. Yeah. Not necessarily. Um, <laughs> but... Um, no, the, 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 the big opportunity for, for Bloomsbury and for China, is that there are many, many, many Chinese, great Chinese books being written and indeed translated into English. Don't see too many of them. You no. don't see too many of them because there is no marketing organization, global marketing organization into the rest of the world. So we're putting together with Chinese publishers uh, a marketing organization to take Chinese books in English to the rest of the world. That's the, the one thing I can talk about because we've announced it in various places. 
um, and with the support of the Chinese government, and etc. Also, what, just putting so that, that. What does that mean? You're not going to get too many dissidents writing any uh, any interesting literature. Um, well, I think the dissidents wouldn't write English. Li- uh, wouldn't write interesting literature from within China anyway. Would they? Allowed to. No, exactly. So you're not. But that's so not. So you're getting government approved. Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, uh, uh, um, everything in China is government approved. Of course. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, it, is, it can be good and government approved at the same time, I guess. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, if you want a book on um, train technology, yeah. Now, are you going to get a book about the benefits of capitalistic? <laughs> you, you, you're not. And no, no. Are you going to get a novel where President Xi appears? Probably not. Incidentally, uh, in every bookstore I visited in China, mm. at the front, but they have that. His book. It's price surprise. All over the place. Yeah, it's price surprise. On the other hand, if you if you go to um, various states in the Middle East, you will find the same thing. I mean, yeah, it actually shows the power of the book that the, that the leaders of these places want to be there. So that's China. Then on top of that, and and this is then has lived down to a sort of day a week for Bloomsbury, has liberated me to do a few other things. Um, some of which I've always done, and some of which are new. Um, but in particular, I'm, you know, I've announced the start-up of a new publishing company called Mensch Publishing, as in Menschlichkeit, or whatever, yeah. where everyone in America understands the context, not everyone in this country, and in Germany they don't get it at all. It doesn't matter. And I've got one book, which I'm publishing on February the 7th this coming year and I'm not taking anything else on until I've proved that I can do it. So you're a mother elephant then? I'm a mother elephant, absolutely. Boy am I a mother elephant and I'm discovering what I don't know which is fantastic. Hmm. Well, the things so I've never had to. About well, you thought. You know, I'd have thought after forty-five years I should, but you know, how do I get an SBN, a standard book number? Um, how do how do you generate a barcode? Know. You know, all this stuff. Do that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I'm finding that's all a, these exactly, things. That's two, those are two uh, things that I need to talk to specific experts about for the bibliophile. Yeah. If if I want to know everything about the book, yeah, no, they're both important, really important things. Yeah, so stuff like that, and and you know, how many rounds of proofs do you have, and do you do it? Anyway, I'm learning a hell of a lot, which is great. I'm discovering the the issues, so I'm using Bloomsbury as my sales and distribution partner because mm-hmm. I can't do that from home. But it'll have your your new. It's uh, Mensch Publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be my. It's my risk. Probably twenty thousand pounds mm-hmm. at risk. Do you, can you talk about the book at all or not? Yes, I can. Um, it's called Time to Go, okay. and the time to go is when, like, you know, there's, you're at a party. It's time to go, and there's also a thing in life when it's time to go. It's called death, right? It's called death. And time to leave uh, Bloomsbury. Yes, possibly, yeah. But that wasn't death. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but time new to life. go. Yeah, new life. So time to go. There's an elderly couple, English couple, living in France, near where I live in France, which is how it came about. 
they're getting on for 90, perfectly good health. Well, you know, they're 90, but okay, but they really don't want to go gaga. That's the biggest fear of pretty well everyone. Exactly. Who reads, certainly. And, and everyone has parents or themselves or whatever. It's, it's a big issue. And so they invite their son, Guy, who's a novelist, Guy Kenaway, published by Canongate Gate and Cape, a sort of humorous novelist, but literary, for a meeting. And they say, oh, Guy, darling, uh, we, we, Stanley and I are going to, I think the mum more than Stanley, <laughs> we've decided we both want to die, and, uh, but we'll need your help. He, being a novelist, starts making notes. And for a year, they come up with various plans on how they're going to do it. It's a very funny book, because he's a funny writer. But it's a very serious book. It's an important book. You get a lot of jokes out of death, though, don't you? Well, you can. And Stanley eventually dies just natural causes. Susie, the mum, decides she now doesn't want to die because she's a fighter. And she's got something to fight for, which is to change the law on assisted suicide. And so I have no doubt she will come over for the launch <laughs> and she will lay about her. <laughs> and so that's the book. It's funny. It's called Time to Go. It's Guy Kenaway. We've got a cover that he's reading the proofs as we speak. I will pass for press, I hope, within a couple of weeks. We'll have printed copies by February. We will dispatch them to the United States and Canada and all parts of the world through the Bloomsbury Distribution Channel. Jay Jopling, who's the owner of the White Cube Gallery, a very important art gallery in the centre of Mayfair, is, is backing the party because he's a friend. A guy called Nick Quinn, who's a French-based documentary maker, is filming us as we move towards publication and we'll film the mum. We've got an extremely good actor, Alex Jennings, to read the audio book. He played the Duke of Windsor in the, in the Netflix series uh, and was in the Jeremy Thorpe documentary that happened recently. Uh, very good. And so there'll be the audio book will come out simultaneously. I am going to France on tomorrow and I, well, there I will record Susie's, the mum's voice, to give to a female actor because she wrote one chapter in the book. Okay. He invited her to write a chapter which he wouldn't touch to let her have her voice. So we've got what to find... What was that? What, what wouldn't he touch? Anything she wrote. I mean, he would allow everything to. So she's writing a chapter about how she sees it all. I see. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell me it was about sex or something. No, no, and he no. He didn't want to touch that. So. No, 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 no. Okay. It's whatever it was. Yes, she's okay. got her voice out there. But it means on the audio yes. book we have to have someone whose voice was at least not too dissimilar. Anyway, all these things I'm learning. Yeah, and, yeah, it's, yeah. and and on the seventh of February we publish, and I'll either lose twenty thousand, or I'll make a bit. Um, and the author. A bit. You may make a whole whack. Well, it may work, yeah, but it, it's but but publishing that sort of publishing is not uh, unless you get you know really big. Yeah, I I don't think you'll ever make the margins are are okay, but they're not 
stellar. They're yeah. just they're yeah. just what they are. Um, and I, but what I really hope is we're I'm paying the author. Um, I, I, I shouldn't give the exact number because it wouldn't be right. But I'm paying him a proport a percentage of everything that I get mm, mm. revenue. And I hope that's a good number. And I hope it's more than he gets for his novels as advances, which don't turn out. Right. I hope he will actually earn this money. And he's he's right behind it all. And uh, and Mensch, as I say, Menschlich is as Menschlich does. So I'm doing things that probably I shouldn't. Like whenever I get a bill, I pay it by return because that's, what Menschlich is. Mm -hmm. And if he wants to make a change, the author wants to make a change, he gets a change. And if he doesn't like the cover, it's his cover. And so he has those rights throughout. And I, have, I don't think I've done anything without consulting him because mm. uh, it's his book. And that's how you think publishing should work? Well, it's a way. It may not mm. work. <laughs> who knows um, I, did you see the piece I wrote in Publishing Perspectives about it when did that come um, out during the Frankfurt Book Fair about a, um, two weeks ago I think I mean, no I don't think okay if you go to Publishing Perspectives yeah. I, I've written a piece On uh, which is called how open brackets not close brackets to start a publishing business or something like that it's so. just a bit odd that you've, uh, you haven't experienced this before I've never it's owned my own business no, that's right. I mean, you're putting your own money up, but the, but, but just doing these things or being you knew a, a, about the fact that they had to be done, but you're yeah, yeah. but you're actually doing it yourself. I suppose that's the difference. That's the difference. I mean, when I, I suppose when I was started forty five years ago, yeah. I did many of these things myself. But everything's changed quite yeah, a lot yeah, in, yeah, in exactly. that time, and I've been general managing for quite a few years now, right. and, and frankly more concerned with the structure of the organizations and how the marketing will work and uh, developing new lines, but not, not the nitty-gritty. Do you think 20 years ago you could have even done this? Probably not. Like, is it I think it's a lot, I think in a way it's easier today, yeah. Yeah, and uh, do you think that anyone who's smart and has got 25,000 pounds could do something yeah, like this? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I back to, I think we're where Maybe before where we started. I think the innovation in the industry is going to come from those people rather than the big guys. The big guys will innovate in certain ways. Yeah. But in terms of pure publishing, I do this monthly column for publishing perspectives. And so I wrote about setting up Mensch. Yeah. Uh, but this month's column, providing the editor doesn't reject it, which he, he is entitled to do, is about accounting in publishing, which sounds very boring, and it may well be a boring piece. Well, especially I, if it's on your, your own money, it's not boring, is it? Well, that's true, but it's also how to measure commercial success. Mm. So I, I identify five measures. The first measure is how many copies do you sell? And that, for many authors, is is the definition of commercial success and indeed we plaster it million copies sold on the front cover trouble with that is in the, today's world you could do uh, tens of thousands of copies of a one cent ebook yeah and it wouldn't mean anything so 
copies not so good. The second one is revenues. Well, that's good. And you really want revenues to go up. So that's a reasonable one. But the trouble with revenues is if the revenues are all made at negative margin, anyone can sell a book if you discount it far enough and you get revenue for it. But you've given the, the discount is such that it's more than the print cost. You want some profit is what you so, want. So, well, the third one is profit. The trouble with profit, and profit is, is better than, you know, I'm going up the <laughs> tree here. Profit is better. You're going up to self-actualization, right? Well, <laughs> profit is better, but profit is, uh, is subjective. One may think it's not subjective, but it is, because you, you're entitled to have whatever accounting policies you may decide to deal with on how you deal with advance provisions, stock provisions, with bad debt provisions, how you amortize your computer costs. Of course, the main beneficiary of profit is Her Majesty's revenue, because tax is paid on profit, not on revenue, but on profit. Mm -hmm. So whilst we all love more profit, of course, whatever percentage your government takes of it, is they take of it. So be careful. And so you move to the fourth one, because if you are running your own business, profits, well, you don't really want to spend money with the government if you don't have to. But what really matters is cash flow. And cash is a tangible thing. The, you can't, it's, it's not subjective. Mm-hmm. There it is or there it isn't. There's no write-offs, it's there or it's gone. Everything you've spent is spent and everything you earn is earned and you're left with cash. And I'm pretty sure in Stone Age, that's how the first men here manufacturers operated. They didn't uh, have accounting principles, except a really good one. Money in, money out. I think that's the first actual example of writing is accounting. Yeah. Who is it? I think. Yeah. Uh, the Phoenician, I don't yeah. know exactly. But where were it, they but doing it on cash or profit? I, I wonder. So, <laughs> so, um, so cash is the fourth criterion. Mm-hmm. But the but, trouble with cash is, if you're a publisher, generating cash is all very well, but that's not what you're being measured on. Because uh, you're a publisher, you're meant to, how, how well are you publishing is the question. Are you publishing something good? So you move to the fifth, which is asset value. And asset value is what is sitting in your filing cabinets or on your hard disk called author's contracts. So for instance, the license for the term of copyright to publish the seven volumes of Harry Potter by gun is an asset, as is Margaret Atwood or Michael and Darcy, um, or anyone else you care to name. And have you, in the course of this year, that's just been passed, added to that asset value, or have you not? And it's very hard to measure assets. You can measure revenue and you can measure profit and you can measure cash, but you can't actually measure intellectual property assets. Or indeed, it's not just intellectual property, it's the brand values, your 
the end of the year Faber is more famous than it was at the beginning of the year, more attractive than it was at the beginning of the year. Just These won are, the booker. Yeah, that's very hard to measure. That it is hard to measure does not mean you should not try to measure it and does not mean you shouldn't try to take account of it. Now, if you're a public company, your asset value is reflected in your share price, but we know markets are imperfect. And one would hope that the publisher knows more about their assets than the City of London or, or Wall Street. And anyway, most publishers are not public companies. Is this all for the benefit of the little guy like you? Well, no, it's I think it's for the benefit of anyone. I think it is a question of understanding what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the case study I use is uh, Penguin's acquisition of um, uh, Frederick Warren in 1973, I think. That's the children's book. Yeah. Frederick, well, it was at one stage, it was a general yeah. publisher. Now, I'm, I haven't got the numbers, but I'm pretty sure it had static sales, uh, both in volume and value. Uh, I suspect it was making very little profit, generating almost no cash. Peter Mayer, God bless him, saw something in there, not about its profits or its revenue, but about its assets, mm. which was Peter Rabbit, mm -hmm. the license to publish Peter Rabbit. And to make films from And it. you name it. And one of the great acquisitions of the 20th century. And I don't think he, he would have, well, I think he might have done. He would intuitively was measuring the asset value. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to do. And I, when, when I was at Oxford, they had some great products, obviously. And as an editor... Yeah, Oxford University Press. Yeah. Uh, and as an editor there, I used to think that if in 10 years you as an editor could add one product to their top 10... You mean like one title? One title or one something. It might be set up a new branch in Ghana. Uh, in my case, it was commissioning and publishing something called the Oxford Textbook of Medicine, which for not now, I don't think, but then for 10, 20 years, added to their asset value. You may not have seen the profit in year one or year two, but over time, absolutely did add to their asset value. Hmm. So I think it's it's not, it's a, just a way of everything else is important. All five criteria of measurement are important. But the hardest one, and therefore in a way the most interesting one, is an evaluation of asset value and how do you increase it. I mean, to give you a negative example, it's quite easy to make money by buying books from packages. You do a deal with a packager for a new illustrated biography of Muhammad Ali. You sell 10,000 copies, you make a profit, and you run away. And you, but you haven't added to the asset value of yeah. the business yeah. you're running. And getting back to you, what you've been doing on your own here with yeah. Mensch. Yeah. You know, something that, that you're really proud of achieving is 
yeah, is an I asset. Hope. I hope. It, it yeah. will be an asset. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> if it's not, I'll give it to my son. Okay. <laughs> so. If if not, you'll uh, you'll ask your son to help you kill yourself. That yeah, that's the way it is. Yeah, but not for a few years yet. I'm, yeah. I'm uh, still hoping to live on. I'm waiting for my great grandchildren. That's my thing. That's a pretty good incentive. Mm, certainly yeah. is. We've got a way to go. Yeah. Any final thoughts about your experience in publishing, either? On your own or as yeah. a manager, yeah. uh, and where where it's all headed? Well, I I have thought about it a bit because you know forty six years, it's a long time, as they say. And one conclusion is that it's a very decent industry. I hear that all over the place, and I've, I've experienced yeah. it too. Yeah. yeah, but you know, I I sit on the on the advisory committee of the Frankfurt Book Fair. And round the table are what in Yiddish we call big macha, the big players <laughs> uh, of, of the industry. And they are as nice, as inclusive, as open, as the really nice smaller ones, the smaller independents who are also nice and in different things. Like I find people who work in production are terrific and people who work in marketing terrific, in accounting, you know, and, I, and, and in Italy and in Spain and in Latin America and in China. Why is that? I think because we're working with something that genuinely does no evil. Hachette uh, sells uh, arms, doesn't it, somewhere? Uh, well, no. Lagardère owns a chunk of an arms thing. But that's not their publishing. And Google claims to do no evil. Well, okay. And I suspect some books are a bit evil. But by and large, we are working in a product that we love. That's doing good in the world. By and large, doing good, even if no one... Even if it's a failure financially, for someone it will have done some good. Right? Maybe the author's mother is the only one, but you know, that may be enough. Yeah. That may be enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that leads to nicer people. Yeah. I think also that by and large it's not a hugely profitable business. Back to my point about the accounting. You would think more publishers would go broke than do. And the reason they don't is because they get bought. That's they how they make their money, is they don't make it while they're doing no. the work. And that's because they've built the asset. Mm -hmm. Back to why that asset valuation is so important. But it does mean that we, we're open with each other because there's a lot of this trading going on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's fun. It's hard to say it's not fun. I mean, compared... My father was a first-generation immigrant. And so he ran shoe shops, um, and they had a tassel factory and various other things. But he would die. He did die, but he would have died to do the job I've done over my career. Yeah. Because the combination of commerce, culture, and creativity is very attractive. And perhaps why, back to my original thing about the... F 
the article is going to be called Four Jews and a Catholic okay. for the author. I don't know whether they use that headline, but that was mine. <laughs> um, but the, the reason that there were four Jews, basically immigrants, is because it's relatively low working capital mm-hmm. and it plays to the strengths of an educated person who likes adding up. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know. who pays attention to that and yeah. is yeah. hard working. Yeah, and a lot of detail. And so it played to that, that general. The, the four were Andre Deutsch, George Weidenfeld, Paul Hamlin, and Charles Pick, who was the MD of Heinemann. Uh, and the fifth was Lord Longford, who owned Sidrick and Jackson. He was a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Uh, the next time we meet, I'll look forward to you having developed assets in your in Mensch and you would have just sold out to a conglomerate and we could talk about that. Yeah. How's that? Hey, fantastic. I hope I got a good price. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with uh, Richard Charkin, who has been in the publishing business since 1972. Correct. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Nigel.